We're going to be in Romans again this morning, one last time. As you're turning there, I, I'm grateful this morning. I'm surprised and grateful this morning that we have a new uh, record for youngest church attender today. Addison Rose is with us this morning, and I'm grateful uh, that we have a, a three-day-old, I think, here with us today. So that's, I guess, outside of some pre-born babies that are here this morning as well. Uh, this is, uh, even just thinking about that this week, I, I, this week is an interesting week. We, we yesterday had a, a funeral celebration here for Ivan Holsing, who was 100 years old as he passed. And we have Addison with us this morning. We're going to have a week filled with children in this sanctuary for Vacation Bible School, and we're going to bookend it with another funeral for Joy Palmer next Saturday. Uh, and that is the life of the church. That's our hope, is that we can can do both of those things, that we can celebrate lives, faithful lives that are well-lived, and that we can uh, encourage those who are even three days old and begin to plant seeds of the gospel in their, in their hearts, that God will help us to do that. We are in, in Romans today, and, and hopefully we're going to finish up this, this look at Paul's letter to the Romans. We have been walking through his letters. We've come to Romans. We've spent a little bit more time on Romans because there's so much stuff in this letter in the book of Romans. And so this is actually week number four as we've tried to, to give the 30,000-foot view of what Paul's letters were. And we don't have time to review all the things. You know that Paul was in Corinth. He was wintering in Corinth. He was writing a letter to the church in Rome, to people he had not been there. He had not gone to Rome yet. He, he had not visited that church. This was not a church that Paul started in Rome. So he's writing to, to some people he doesn't know. You'll see in chapter 16 that, that Paul does a lot of name dropping as he closes out his letters about people he does know in Rome. But Paul has not been to Rome yet, and so he's writing a letter to Rome. He's telling them that he wants to go to Spain. He wants to, to stop at Rome on his way to Spain. He's trying to build some support. He's trying to encourage the church there. And he, what, one of the things he's trying to do is to help the, the, the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers who are in the church in Rome. If you remember, the Jewish believers had been sent out by the emperor of Rome, and so only Gentile believers had been there for about five years. The Jewish believers had come back, and there was conflict at the church because now there was Jewish believers and Gentile believers, and they were trying to figure out how to come together and how to join together and how to connect and build unity in the church. And so Paul is sending this letter off from his winter in Corinth, and he sends it off. And, and this is really one of the best letters that we have that helps us to understand the things that Paul was teaching all of, all of the other letters are letters to churches where he had been a part, he knew who was there, he had, he had visited those churches, he knew the faces and the people that he was writing to, he had previously been a part of that church, but Rome was different. And so now he begins to share some things in Rome, in his letter to the Romans, uh, that, that is different than his other letters. He gives us this logical progression as we work through this detailed presentation of the gospel from the beginning to the end. And we've been trying to walk through, I've been trying to just walk you through that progression so you can better understand this letter because this is a letter. We call it the book of Romans. It's, it's one of the largest books that we have in the New Testament. It's the most detailed explanation of the gospel. It's the most we have of Paul writing, Paul's writings. And so we spend lots of time on it, but it really was a letter. 
It was just one long consecutive letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And so we've walked through it. As we've walked through, we saw in chapters 1 and 2 that, that Paul begins by talking about how we have suppressed the truth of the knowledge of God, that we have all in creation around us, and even we've suppressed the truth that's inside of us, the truth of the knowledge of God that's inside of us. And we have, have worshipped created things rather than the creator, Paul tells us. And that sin... That sin is significant because of the way it's dealt with. And Paul doesn't shy away from the fact that God's wrath is going to be poured out on sin. Sin is going to be dealt with wrath. And so Paul spends a significant time talking about it. But in chapter 3, he goes on. He says, our righteousness, though... We have the sin that we've suppressed inside of us. We've worshiped created things rather than the creator. But our righteousness, it comes from God. He says, it's a free gift that comes from God. It's through the redemption that comes through Christ Jesus. It's by a, a, a propitiation, he says. It's a, it's a gift, a, an offering to satisfy wrath that God has given to us. And it's received by faith. It's received by faith. Chapter 4, he continues on in that idea that our redemption comes through faith, not in the law. Our redemption comes through faith, not in the law. In fact, he, he talks about how Abraham, the, the father of Israel, that Abraham was credited righteousness by faith, not by following the law. He was credited, he was declared righteous even before circumcision. And redemption comes through faith. In chapter 5, he says that sin entered through one man, Adam, and was passed on to all men from that one man, but now we are justified by one man, by a new Adam, that those who have faith in Jesus have justification. Chapter 6, he says we are now slaves we are no longer slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to righteousness. That there's a newness of life, Paul says in chapter 6. That we now have life in the spirit instead of being a slave to sin. That causes him in chapter 7 to, to think about how he has this new life in the spirit. And so he begins to think, does that mean that, that, that we, have, have, we have sanctification? But he says, I, I know, I know the sin that I have inside of me. I know all the times that I want to do good, but I can't do it. And all the times that I don't want to do wrong, but I continue to do them. He says in chapter 7, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me? Thanks be to God. Paul says, which leads him to chapter 8. There's no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's hope, Paul says. We are free in Christ, and so we no longer have to worry about separation from God, but now we have peace with God. And we are no longer separated from him. That's where we ended last week. We're no longer separated. Romans chapter 8. It's page 944 if you're in a pew Bible this morning. But I want you to follow along as we try to finish this book of Romans today. Romans chapter 80 says, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, he says in verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he continues on in his logical progression He continues on then in what we see as chapter 9. It would just be continuing in the letter as he wrote it. But I think Paul is writing, he he says, there's nothing that can separate us from from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing that separates us. And And then he thinks, there is. There is something that separates us from God for those who do not believe in Jesus. There's some that who, who, who are Separated. And so here in chapter 9, his, his, his attention turns back to those Jewish unbelievers, those who are, are still in their Jewish faith and they have not accepted Jesus as the Messiah. So look in chapter 9, right away at the very beginning, verse, verse 1. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth of Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul, Paul's mind turns to his fellow Jews. He has a, he has a burden He's a burden for those that have been waiting on, that they have been expecting, they have been hoping in the promise that God had given that there would be a Messiah. They've been longing for that one. He, he, he has a, a burden, such a burden that he says, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. I want you to see, he says. You've been waiting on this promise for thousands of years and now the promise has been fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus came for you. He is the promised Messiah that you have waited for for so, so long. But this salvation, he says, it doesn't come just through the promise. It comes through faith. It's received by faith. He says that in chapter 9. Look down in verse 8. This means that it's not children of the flesh who are the children of God, but it's the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. He has this great sorrow and unceasing anguish for those who are resting in their lineage. And instead, he says, it's not the lineage, it's the promise. It's the promise. It's not the flesh, but it's received by faith. Salvation comes through faith. And in fact, he continues on in chapter 9 with that same theme. Jump down to verse 25. As indeed, he says to Hosea, he quotes Hosea here, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there, there they will be called sons of the living God. He's called a new people, not of the flesh, not from the lineage, but of the promise. Verse 30, chapter 9, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. And Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? 
because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. He said, you who think you are in the line of God's people, you are not in the line of God's people without faith. You have, you have pursued the law and you have lost righteousness by your pursuit of the law. Instead, you should pursue righteousness, he says. Seek righteousness by faith. So then he continues on, chapter 10. He says, there's this message. There's this message for all who believe. He tells us about it in verse nine. It was on the screen earlier today. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul says this message, this message is for everyone who will believe. Jew, Gentile, anyone who believes, this message is for him. It's pretty clear. In fact, you know, you know as we've walked through a number of these verses, you've heard them a number of times because, because there's a, a plan of salvation they call the Romans Road where they just walk through scripture in Romans to help us to see God's plan for salvation. It's many times it's found just right here in chapter 10. If we confess, if we repent, if we see our sin and understand our need for a savior, if we believe in our heart, if we have a full confidence in our soul, if we call on the Lord to be saved, if we act and call on the Lord to be saved, we will then be bestowed with the riches of faith, Paul tells us. The riches of faith. Hope, joy, peace with God. As I wrote that, I, I added a note here this morning. I, I don't know, this is a little side topic, but I don't know if you saw the Oklahoma Sooner softball team. They had a, a press conference in this last week after they won the national championship. If you haven't seen it, you need to go see it. There's three, three softball players who, who are asked about uh, how happy they are after they've won this championship, and they respond. It's, a, it's, a, it's an awesome interview. Go and watch the video if you can later today. Where they respond and, and say, happiness comes from earthly circumstances, but we have found joy in Jesus. And three of them talk about that. Those are the riches of faith. That's what Paul's talking about when he says that we are bestowed then with the riches of faith. He's not talking about financial riches. He's not even talking about happiness of circumstances. He's talking about joy of soul, joy of eternity. That's what he passes on to us. And so, Paul continues on. Everyone who believes, everyone who believes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so again, that causes him to think of his fellow Israelites. So in chapter 11, he, he continues on in chapter 11. So, so are, is Israel, have the Jews, have they been rejected then? This whole lineage of faith that we have, have they been rejected? And he says in chapter 11, look in verse 1. 
He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people, Paul says? By no means. I myself am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul has this this longing for his people to know Jesus as the promised Messiah. He goes on in chapter 11 to talk about that. What does it mean then if God has not rejected his people? Look all the way down in verse 30 of chapter 11. He says, now he's talking to Gentiles, talking about Jews, but talking to Gentiles. He says, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, now you've received mercy because of their disobedience, the Jews' disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also receive mercy. He says, be careful, Gentiles. You, you look at these Jews and you think they, they had this promise for so long. They, had, they, they, they thought they, they were guaranteed this salvation, but their disobedience has led to your righteousness. And he says, your, your disobedience is going to lead to mercy for them to see as well. That there's hope for both Jews and Gentiles. And I think Paul reads that, just even as we read it, it's difficult for us to completely understand. And so Paul continues on. Look at at 11.33. He's he's thinking about this idea. He's thinking about how how God has grafted in Gentiles into the believing tree, and he's chopped off unbelieving Jews who are not part of the tree, and they've been cast out. He's thinking through all of these things. And he says in verse, chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. He says, I don't understand it completely. I don't understand how he can graft some in and how he can chop some off. I, I, I know God has not rejected his people, but he's there for all who believe. But who can know the mind of God? I can't comprehend all of it, Paul says, and you won't either. And so we just trust. We just trust in the sovereign working in the sovereign ways of God. And so then he moves in chapter 12 as he Walks through that, he says, so if this is all true, if Jews and Gentiles have come together, they're all part of the tree of faith, what does that mean as we move forward? How are we to live, especially how is the church in Rome to live, these believing Jews and believing Gentiles that have come back together and they have this conflict between the ways that they're living, how are we to live together? And so Paul begins in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, those chapters, he begins just to lay out ways that they are to live, that they are to live in unity, that they are to live in love, that they are to live in forgiveness together. He wants the body of believers to have unity. Look in chapter 12. Uh, There's a number of verses that that connect with this, but uh, in chapter 12, let's begin in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that the testing you may discern is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He continues on, laying out the ways he wants them to live. Look at verse 9. He says, let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. It's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, he says in verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you see, over and over, Paul says, I want you to live in unity. I want you to live sacrificially in love and forgiveness for each other. He continues on. We don't have time to look at all of it, but in, in chapter 13, he says in verse 8, Owe no one anything except love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. And he continues on. Even in even chapter 14, the same theme. Unity, love, forgiveness, humility. All these things you're doing, he says, you need to, to come together in unity. He says in chapter 14, verse 7, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. We're to do this in unity and live in unity. He continues on, even that same theme, into chapter 15, verse 5. Look at that. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Live together. Live together in unity. He's telling these Jews and these Gentiles, live together in unity. That's, that's what this gospel does. It causes you to live in forgiveness. It causes you to, to love well. It causes you to have humility in who you are so that you might live together. And then look at verse 14 in chapter 15. This is, this is super encouraging to me. He, he, he lists all of these things for three chapters, 12, 13, 14, 15. He's telling them how they might live in unity and, and talking about the disagreements that they've had over all kinds of different things in the church. And then in verse 14, he says, I myself, I am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. You are filled with all knowledge and you are able to instruct one another. What an encouragement. Paul's gone through all these things to tell them how to do it. And then he says, I believe in you. I see it in you. I think you can do it. That's encouraging. Paul has faith that they can live exactly the way he's called them to live, that God has called them to live. He closes his, closes his letter there towards the end of chapter 15 and, and begins to give some plans that he has. As I mentioned, he, he wants to 
to, to leave from Corinth. He's going to go to Jerusalem to drop off the offering that he has collected. Look at, in fact, look at that in, in verse 25, 15, 25. It says, at present, I'm, I'm heading to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints for, remember all these churches in Macedonia and Achaia that he's been collecting an offering in all those different churches on his journeys? It says, for Macedonia and Achaia, I've been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. Again, he wants them to live in harmony and to live in unity together. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also might be of service to them in material blessings. Do what you can to live together, he says. And then as he continues to write about his desire to come to the church, as I mentioned, he spends much of chapter 16 name-dropping there talking, giving greetings to those that he knows, and as he writes, I think, or as he, as he transcribes, or gives it to someone else to transcribe, as he speaks, I think he remembers another family, and another group, and another family, and so he continues to name drop that, but then he closes, it, as you look at the end of chapter 16, look at verse 19, he closes by saying, your obedience is known to all so that I can rejoice over you. I want you to be wise as to what is good. I want you to be innocent to what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. Paul says you can do it. I have faith that you can do it. I see that your obedience is known to everyone, and I just want you to be wise in the way that you walk. I want you to be innocent of evil, and I want you to know that God has power over Satan and will crush him underneath your feet. So what do we know from this letter? We've spent four weeks on it. Others have spent 400 weeks on it. What do we know from the stories and the lessons that we've learned here in Romans the worship team is going to come and lead us in just a moment. I just want to point out four things I think that Paul tells us here in Romans. Paul doesn't shy away from sin. He doesn't shy away from sin. And oftentimes we, 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 we hear, I hear from some of you, we spend so much time talking about sin. And it's because Paul doesn't shy away from it. Scripture doesn't shy away from it. All of our sin, all of our sin the wrath of God is going to come against our sin, and so we don't want to belittle it. We don't want to redefine it. We don't want to, we don't want to, we don't want to say that's just the way I am. But we want to see our sin. We want to see our selfishness because all of the wrath is going to be poured out on all of our sin, but Jesus is enough, Paul tells us. Jesus is. His righteousness covers our unrighteousness. So Paul doesn't shy away from sin. He knows that faith comes to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Faith comes to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And that faith, this is number three, that faith leads to life change. You're no longer slaves to sin, but now you have this newness of life. You have this life change inside of you. And four, that spirit-filled living brings unity in the church especially. But it brings unity, it brings forgiveness, it brings humility, it brings love. That's how you are to live for those who have come to faith. Our sin's a big deal. 
Faith comes to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. When you have faith, you are a new person. And that changes the way that you live. That's Romans in a nutshell this morning. The worship team's going to lead us. We're going to worship. Will you please stand as we close together? and peace oh how can this be for lawbreakers and thieves for the worthless the least you have said that our judgment is death for all eternity without What an amazing mystery, what an amazing mystery, that your grace has come to me.
Paul closes his letter to the Romans with this, and I leave it with you. Now to his him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that has been kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Thanks for coming this morning.